I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Face to face, I'm your host Sean McCraney. We are having a Holy Day special. That's four CDs in his words. Uh, and then I was a born again Mormon. Shield of Faith by Brandon Peterson. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. And uh, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face to face in A to Z doctrinal comparison. All of this, plus a copy of our forthcoming book that will come out in spring of next year for the low price of $52.29, plus shipping and handling, which brings it up to about $59.86 and a half. So uh, if you're interested in that, go to our website at www.hotm.tv and you can participate in that. And Derek and Danita will box it up and ship it out to you. Almost can guarantee, almost can guarantee that you'll get it by Christmas. Uh, just to let you know, I got a wonderful little calendar here. And uh, I was just given this by someone who loves me. And uh, they were walking through a store and saw this and it said, just reminded them of me. So I consider that great. And that's, that's almost, it, it's almost an exact uh, <laughs> replica. Before we get into our message tonight, I want to suggest something. Mormonism, as, that ha as it has stood, Joseph Smith's Mormonism, I believe, is done for. Um, it may take a few years, possibly a couple decades, but Joseph Smith's Mormonism, I think, is over. And I say this not because of these partial official announcements that the LDS Church are making, uh, I'm not saying it because of the internet information that's out there and the work that, you know, great uh, uh, LDS apologists like Sandra Tanner and, and McKeever and these other people have really put a lot of work into trying to reach the LDS. I'm not saying it because they've, they've been able to do it. I say this because of this book that I'm holding in my hands. Uh, it's titled, This is My Doctrine, The Development of Mormon Theology. Now, now, this is a, it's, it's from uh, uh, Greg Coford Books, K-O-F-F-O-R-D.com, uh, Greg Coford Books. But the thing that makes this book so good is not just the content, and I highly recommend this book to anybody who is interested in understanding not only Mormonism, but the development of theology within Mormonism, and also uh, uh, the, some of the Christian views but the thing that's interesting about the book is it was written by a faithful LDS BYU professor named Charles O'Harrell. And um, what is it about the book that causes me to say such a thing? First, it is chock full of reliable, annotated, academically delivered information that unbiasedly describes the formulation of Mormon doctrine over time. Second, the writer clearly explains how far afield the current LDS doctrine is from the biblical point of view. And he, he just shows it. And he has an astute understanding of what the Bible is saying, what the context is of the Bible. He's not, he's not, he just says, this is what the Bible meant. This is what they were saying when they wrote this. And when the LDS used this passage to support their doctrine or that passage, he, he doesn't say they're wrong. He just, he's so articulate in how he explains it, it's amazing. But the mo most importantly, this guy is a devout father of five 
BYU engineering professor who has written the book. This is key. It's so even keeled and well supported that the author can't be charged by his own faith for attacking the church for which he belongs. There's nothing in it that would have the church leader say, you can't say that. But what he says is so destructive to the doctrine that they teach that it, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's simply a book of well-articulated facts from a man whose insights into the meaning of biblical passages and doctrines will ultimately lead to the destruction of Joseph Smith's reputation and the doctrines established post-1835. Book of Mormon may stay around. Uh, that's the only thing that, that Smith would have given that could stay around with the Mormons, not because it came from gold plates, but because uh, it's essentially a 19th century fictional work that supports the Bible in almost every case. There's a few exceptions. I would strongly predict that due to this book and many more that are going to continue to pop up like it in the future, uh, that Joseph Smith's Mormonism is going to fall. And as a result, I'm kind of calling for all the ministries out there aimed at bringing Mormonism down to consider making a shift, uh, a little bit at least, in their approach. Maybe we ought to start pointing people to these LDS, in-house LDS writers and, and, and uh, uh, attendees of the church for their own people to look at what they're saying. <clears throat> We're outside throwing stones and we hit a few every now and then and, and, it, and it works and they come out. But when their own people from the inside are starting to say, wait a second, uh, it's remarkable. You know, and, and it's, others have risen up over the years that have done this. Uh, but lately, in the past 10 years, there's been more and more, and there's kind of this growing mass. John DeLynn's stuff, I know he's not really a, a, a full uh, uh, active LDS, but John DeLynn's interviews, um, Grant Palmer's book, Insider's View of Mormon Origins, another insider, yeah, they disfellowshipped him, but, and so he's lost a little respect among the thing. They're not going to do anything to Harold. I don't think, for writing this. And it's going to be stuff like that. So let's start praying for the LDS Church and its members. And those of us who've been involved in reaching them, maybe consider spending more of our time and energy pointing them to listen. Hey, you know, here's some facts that we can present to you. But additionally, just go read one of your own members' books. Anyone who reads this is going to have their eyes opened and they'll be astounded. And with that, how about a word of prayer? Father, we seek you, need you. Uh, you seek for us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Um, and so we seek the spirit and we seek the truth. And where I am far afield and wrong and, and full of error, we pray that you'll forgive that and that it won't affect people's faith or their walk, but that your spirit will touch us. And what you want us to know is we talk about you relative to punishment, eternal punishment, foreknowledge, all this information, Lord. Be with us now. Be with our volunteers. Be with our staff, those who are seeking. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been talking in the face of what has traditionally been taught in Christianity relative to the sovereignty of God for the past few weeks, relative to hell and to love and free will. And we've asked, is there another way to approach biblical Christianity then through the Calvinist viewpoint and or through the Arminianist viewpoint. Is there another way? Because those generally kind of size everything up. Last week, I suggested the other way might be called total reconciliation. And which, as I said last week, does not teach that all people are saved, uh, nor that all enter heaven as sons and daughters of God, but that God will reconcile all to him in the end. That's different than everyone being saved. In the face of this, let's take a minute to reiterate some points before we go to Scripture to support this idea of total reconciliation. First, we have to admit, and this, some of this is, is rehearsal, that God is certainly sovereign and in total and complete control. I do believe that. His will is done, as we pointed out in Scripture last week. Secondly, we know from Scripture that His will is good and not evil, that there's no shadow in Him, that He desires good things and seeks good ends, not bad. The view is consistent with His nature, which is love. 
With his nature being love, we might then suggest that real love acts in direct opposition to control and to controlling, but operates in and around the free will decisions of others. Control, when we read about it in scripture, is often defined in many ways as, as diabolical in its applications. Bondage is a tool of the devil. Uh, love is liberating and free, not controlling. So how then is God, who is love, pure love, all love, the definition of love, completely sovereign and always successful in getting his ultimate will accomplished without being demonically controlling over us where we're just puppets. It's by foreknowledge, by his foreknowledge. He controls by foreknowledge, not by force. Okay? So we get the picture of this when Joseph was sold into Egypt by his brothers after going through all sorts of terrible things. He became a mighty prince and he oversaw the distribution of food uh, that saved his family among others, from starvation. Well, when his brothers who had sold him came to Egypt uh, years later in search for food, he, Joseph revealed himself. And of course, they felt horrible and they were frightened for having sold him in the first place. And this is what Joseph said to them in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you thought evil against me. Listen now. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass as this day to save much people alive. We know God meant it. They, they did something evil of their own free will. They, God allowed them, but by his foreknowledge, he meant it to accomplish much good. How did a good and loving God in light of the free will choices he knew humans would take before creating any of us still create us knowing that most of us would go to hell and or the lake of fire due to our free will choices. Additionally, how is he able to have his will done in the face of our free will choices? Foreknowledge, my friends, by his foreknowledge, his omniscient foreknowledge thriving in the glory of love allows for human beings and angels and saints and demons to freely choose while at the same time giving him total and ultimate control over the end of all things according to his goodwill and pleasure, ensuring that in the end he will be all in all, as Paul says. Speaking of his foreknowledge, God said in Isaiah 42, 9, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Psalms 33, 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel said in Daniel 2, 28, But there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and makes known to the King Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Speaking of the day when heaven and earth would pass away, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, But of that day and hour no man knows, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. That's foreknowledge. Listen to what Peter said about his being called as an apostle. Listen to these words. He said that he was elect, 1 Peter 1, 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. That's in, that's in Peter's introduction. He says it was by elect that he was elect as an apostle according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Even when it came to the suffering and death of his own son, we know it did not surprise God what would happen and who would do it. He arranged it all knowing what they would do and what would occur. In other words, did God force Satan or the Jews or the Romans to do what they did? Not in the least. Not in the least. They chose. But God, knowing all things, allowed them to do what they chose to do to bring about his sovereign will. 
That's how we can look at this. Related to this point, in Acts 2.23, Peter is speaking to a group of Jews on the day of Pentecost. This is what Peter says. Listen to these words. Him, meaning Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel of Jews and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So Peter tells them, listen, you know, it was by your wicked hands. You took him, you crucified, you slayed him. He was delivered to the determinate council of men who, who uh, indicted him on false charges. But it was by the foreknowledge of God that this happened. He knew and he allowed you guys to do what you were going to do. But you still did it, you see. Listen to what Peter said. Jesus was delivered by the determinate council and that means, and by the foreknowledge of God to them where they took him and with wicked hands crucified and slay him. So again, let's go back and ask ourselves. In the beginning, did God know Adam and Eve would sin? Absolutely. No surprise. Did Satan get them to sin? Sure. Did God create Satan? Yes. Did Adam and Eve have the free will to choose evil? You bet. They chose. Did God force them to disobey? Not in the least. The Calvinists would have to say he did. No way. But as a result of his foreknowledge, Scripture says that Jesus was slain from the, before the foundations of the world. Now, this does not mean that, the, that Jesus was actually killed before the foundations of the world occurred, but it means that in and through the foreknowledge of God before the world was, his death was wholly established as necessary as God means to save the world he so loved. Stay with me now. We know from Scripture that God is good, light, and love. He desires a good and expected end, not an evil one. We know that out of his good pleasure and out of a good loving pleasure, because he is love, that he created all things knowing beforehand how all of us would freely choose the evil we would do, the good that we would do, and how we would be, not forcing us to be, but freely allowing us to be and do whatever we were gonna going we were going to end up doing and being. Ask yourselves, prior to creating all these things with a complete foreknowledge of us and what we would do, would a loving God desire that all would repent or only some? There's your question. If you say only some, he would only desire, him being sovereign, that only some would repent. I want to know why. Why only some would a loving God want only some to repent and not all? And if he desires all to repent, won't all repent at some point in time and some point in their existence? If God created them, he gets his will, he has foreknowledge, he allows for free will. Won't all repent somewhere along the line? Wouldn't a loving God figure out a way to reconcile the most lost, wicked, failing creatures than just save those who uh, he either redeemed or were redeemed because they were humble enough to see Jesus in this life? He knew us all, and he knew we were all going to mess up and to some degree or another. And he knows all of us are going to relate and handle things differently uh, and we're going to make a big mess out of some things. And we're going to make a little mess out of others. Some of us are going to be better. Some of us are going to be worse. He's known it all. Doesn't scripture say that he desires that all would be saved? Does this mean God wants all to be saved? And that he will force all to be saved? Hang with me. We're, get, we're getting deeper into scripture. There are two basic words in the Greek for God's will. This is really important. Thelema. Thelema, it's from the T-H-E, that's from Theos, God. Lima is essentially described as God's gracious designs, okay? His desired will. It's not the will that he will, he will ensure happens. It's his overall desired will. Thelema, God's desired will. 
And it, it means he wants Adam and Eve never to sin. He wants pe- children to come in to live into paradise and nothing to ever go wrong. That's his desired will. Does God always get his thelema will? No. So when scripture says he desires that all would be saved, that's thelema. He has the desire that all would be saved, but not all will be saved as we've pointed out. Okay. The second Greek word is bolema. That's like bolemic. Okay. And it's used to describe his deliberate will which means this is going to happen. And I don't care what goes on, God's bolema is done. Okay? So thelema desired, bolema purposed, won't be altered. When we go to 1 Timothy 2, 3, 4, and we read this passage, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, what Greek word do you think is used there for will? Is it bolema, it's gonna happen? Or is it thelema, it's just my desire that it happens? In that sense, it's thelema. We have to be honest. He desires that all would be saved, that all men would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. It's a general desire, just like it's a general desire that everybody's healthy and happy and, and strong and without sin. That's a general desire of his. But he allows for human. So there we know he doesn't force. It's his, it, the, the English says who will have all men be saved. But, but Thelema tells us it's his, just his des, general desire. Now, if all are not saved due to their rebelliousness and evil ways, then God's general desires are not met in this area. And that's true. I get this. His general desire is that Adam and Eve would have listened to him. That didn't happen. But with God being love and light and goodness, I suppose that his desire would be that we never sin either. Okay? But we have. So in dealing with fallen, willful human beings, God's general desires are not always met because he gives us free will. And we mess those general desires up. But his expressed bulima desires are always met. We cannot alter those. And so we know he doesn't force bulima but he works it by his foreknowledge. So at this point, I think scripture supports the idea that God generally desires that all would be saved, but because of free will, they won't be. But go to 2 Peter 3.9. This is really important. It says this, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So when we read that God is not willing here in 2 Peter 3, 9, is it Thelema, that's his general desire, or is it Bolema? It's Bolema. It's Bolema. And so we can say he has a general desire that all would be saved, but that's not going to happen. Free will of man comes in and destroys that. But it is his expressed will that not, he, he, will, he is not willing that any should perish. None should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Okay? So you want to argue about what God can do and will do in the redemption of total reconciliation of man. Doesn't mean that all are saved. We pointed that out. People will go to hell. They will go to the lake of fire. They're not saved from that. But nobody, not one, is going to be lost or perished. Okay? How they're going to come to him, I don't know. All I care about is going to him as a son or daughter, as someone who believes and who is saved by the grace through faith in Christ Jesus. But he says it right here in 2 Peter 3, 9. He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And I stand on that. Does that make sense? I hope so. And it's a remarkable. I know um, uh, a man who was, who was um, very well known in the United States in the Christian world. That passage altered his worldview of what the Bible teaches. That passage alone, when it came to him, he was challenged by somebody who said, hey, is it Thelema or Bolema? And he, was, he's, he read Greek, understood Greek. He says, it's Thelema. And he, and he was told, no, it's not. No, yes, it is. 
And they said, no, it's not. And they got out the Greek and they looked and he was blown away that that says that right there in that passage. So from these two passages, we see that God desires all to be saved from hell and a second death. That's not going to be the case. However, despite human choices that we make, in spite of the discipline, they're going to suffer for the rebelliousness. He's not going to allow that any should perish, but that all will come to repentance. Now, apparently, it seems, we can guess, this is conjecture, but it seems like those who are going into hell in the lake of fire, they're going to come to repentance and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess by and through that process. Some are saved by grace through faith. Some are saved by darkness of hell. Some are saved by the lake of fire, not saved, but uh, reconciled. And that's just how it seems to be. In and through this beautiful but rarely taught approach, God maintains his love, sovereignty. He upholds freedom of choice. He's perfectly just while ultimately having his pleasure and desires completely and fully met, which is the total reconciliation of all people that none would perish and all would come to repentance. So let me round this idea out with some biblical concepts and it's just going to be one and it's about first fruits. I want to talk to you about first fruits. Listen to me with this because it's a very important concept. The word first fruits in the Greek is a parchin. And it generally applied to the first fruits of the entire harvest uh, that is suited for being harvested. And it means the best, the first collected, and then consecrated to God as a gift. The idea behind it is that because God has blessed people with a grove of apples, that as a part of their gratitude, they will take the best part of that entire grove and in recognition of his love and mercy, they offer it back to him. So built into the concept of first fruits is also an order. There's a rank because there's first fruits that go to God. We also know there are other fruits that are coming off the trees later. Doesn't mean those fruit aren't good and edible and can't be used. It, but first fruits helps us see that there's a rank and there's an order. So let's suppose that a man owns or a woman owns a grove of apple trees and they want to give the first fruits to God. This doesn't mean that they look excitedly at the, all the trees and the first apple to come they grab and give to God. That's not, in fact, in the nation of Israel, Leviticus 19, 23, 25, when it came to the first tree fruits, the children of Israel had to wait for four cycles of harvests of fruit before they could give God the first fruits. Okay, so it doesn't mean the very first apple to come off the tree of a harvest. I know we tend to think of it that way, but that's not what it means. There's a rank and order of these first fruits, and, um, and there's an acceptable fruits. Numbers 18.12 says it really well. It's the best of the entire harvest. This is what Numbers says. All the best of the oil, and all the best of the wine, and of the wheat, the first fruits of them, which they shall offer unto the Lord, them have I given thee. So you got all that. It almost goes without saying that first fruits were very important to God with the children of Israel. Speaking of first fruits, Ezekiel 48, 14 says, And they shall not sell of it, neither exchange nor alienate the first fruits of the land, for it is holy unto the Lord. And of course, we know that when it comes to human beings in Scripture, Old Testament, that the first fruits of a woman's womb to open the matrix, as it says in the, in the uh, Scripture, is the, uh, the firstborn son. That's the firstborn son is a picture, a similitude of God's only begotten son. So the idea of first fruits picturing the only begotten was initiated very early in biblical history. Remember now, first fruits include the concept of the best, the first delivered among the whole thing, a rank, uh, and listen, a rank of being first of many that are coming. It's not just the first and we stop. This is the point. When God created Adam and Eve uh, in the Garden of Eden, he said everything is good. We might say that Adam and Eve were the first fruits of humanity. They were the first. He's, God said it's good. They were the best. They were of the first order and rank. Okay? And, uh, but we know that many more came. Look at us. And, of course, God gave Adam and Eve a choice uh, to obey him or not, and they chose to do their own will, uh, will and way. And so what did God do? Uh, he knew he was going to do that. Did he stop the human race right then? No, he kept going. Uh, but Adam and Eve were, called, were the first, and they were the best. 
Okay, God called them good. Certainly others came. With the first fruits of the human race failing, Adam and Eve, God elected a nation among all other nations. They were the first fruit nation of God, the nation of Israel. Did you know that? Romans, Paul says in Romans eleven sixteen, speaking of the nation of Israel and likening them to a tree God created and elected for specific purposes, uh, Paul says, referring to the nation of Israel, for if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. So like the first fruit couple, the first fruit nation failed God. Now listen, this is key. Just as individuals came after Adam and Eve as first fruits, uh, so did other nations come after the nation of Israel, right? We know who the people are who came from Adam and Eve, right? All of us. So who are the other nations that followed in that God accepted after the first fruit nation of Israel? All the other nations, all the other Gentiles, right? God has elected based on his foreknowledge of what the nation of Israel would do to use them to achieve his goodwill and pleasure, not because he respected them any more than other nations. He just knew by his foreknowledge what they would do, how they would be. Stay with me now. We then recognize through scripture that God sent his only begotten son to save the world. He was the first fruit of God, Jesus Christ. And he was actually the first and only in many ways. Jesus was the first and only born of a virgin. He was the first and only to live without sin. The first and only to come down from above. The first and only to obey the law perfectly. Having been the best, the first of the order or rank of joint heirs to come. Okay? He's the first fruit. And he became the first fruit in overcoming uh, sin, death, and the grave. So we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and became the first fruits of them that slept. So he's the first one of many to follow to be resurrected. And scripture calls him the first fruit. Because of him, all mankind, every rank will be resurrected. Every single person resurrected because of Christ. And uh, Paul says, but every man of his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. So we have this rank and order. Will others be resurrected after Christ at his coming? Yes, they will. All the way down to every darn last one of us. So we can see God doing every nation. Now every single person is being uh, resurrected. Now ask yourself, will other people besides Christ be resurrected? Of course, according to the Bible, all people, every man will be in his order. Certainly Jesus was the first fruit, the first and only in many ways. But the point is, in, in his case, as the first fruits of them that slept, there will be others to follow, more harvested, and in case of resurrection, all. Remember this as we move forward, almost done. From his ascension on the church, his church, comprised of individual believers, now become the first fruits of all creatures. Did you know that? That believers, you and I, if you're a believer in Christ and you're a Christian, you are the first fruits of all the creatures God has made, mankind. Okay? And I don't know if that includes animals or not. Romans 8.23 calls believers the first fruits of the Spirit. Believers are the first fruits of the Spirit, implying more are coming. All will come to repentance. All will, uh, uh, tongue will confess and the, the knees will bow. First fruits play such an important role in God achieving his own will and pleasure that when a person became a believer in a certain geographical area in uh, the New Testament, they would refer to them. Well, let me give you Romans uh, 16, 5. Paul says, likewise, greet the church uh, that is in their house. Salute my well-beloved Epinetus, who is the first fruits of Acacia unto Christ, meaning he's the first believer in that area. That's how big of a role first fruits play is that when someone believed, they became the first fruits of that church in that area. Here's the point. First fruits does not mean no fruit thereafter. It merely signifies the best 
among, the first rank, the first order among those to follow. Adam and Eve were followed by more people. Nation of Israel followed by more nations. Jesus, first resurrected, was and will be followed by more resurrected. First believers in a given area were followed by more. And the church of the redeemed will be followed by more. Having said this, let me bring up a scripture to you. Okay? It's James 1.18 and it says this. Listen. Of his own will, of his own good pleasure, begat he us with the word of truth, according to his election, based on his foreknowledge, that we, as saved members of the body, be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard that taught? That believers in Christ today save first fruits, sons and daughters of God, joint heirs with Christ, die, go to heaven directly, skip hell, skip the lake of fire, and are first fruits to God. Have you ever heard that any, that we are the, just the first fruits of all his creatures? That scripture right there ought to convince you that we have been taught the wrong things all along. That scripture right there should say, What in the heck does that mean? Because if we're the first fruits of his creatures, we know more are coming along, right? And that's the, the point of Scripture. Certainly, God rejoices in the first fruits of all things. They are His. We are His children. You see, like John says, we've given the power to become sons and daughters. The others are not children. That's why Mary pointed this out. That's why they are, the, the writer says that we are the first fruits of all His creatures. Not of all his children. So he's not saying all will be saved and that all will become sons and daughters. That's universalism. But he is saying he will have his way and all will repent and none will perish. If the Christian church can get this in their mind, we will alter the way that we share this good news and how we reach other people and how we comfort people who have teenagers who have rebelled and died in motorcycles who weren't believers and how we can help people and how we can offset the LDS view of, well, listen, you know, they're going to be taught and they can accept the gospel in another life. And that's so comforting to people. They cling to it rather than a pastor says, well, if he died without Jesus, he's in hell forever and ever and ever. That's just not God's will. And yet the Christians have taught that and we've lost out on something very important in the scripture. You know, in the nation of Israel, really quickly, when they had the harvest, they would do the first fruits, right? And then they would have the general harvest and they would go through and they would pick and pick and get everything. And do you know what they had after that? They had something called the gleanings. You know what that was? That was when people would go through and make sure that if any fruit fell off the tree or was dropped or rolled into a crevice, they pick that up and got it back. That is a picture of God not liking loss, not liking losing anything. Um, we can see this in the teachings of Jesus. Listen to this. We don't have any callers right now, so I'm going to continue on. Matthew 14, 15 through 21. Jesus says this. Remember this setting? Remember when Jesus gathered everybody and night was starting to fall and they didn't have any food? This is what happens. It says, And it was evening. His disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away, that we may go to the villages and buy them victuals. But Jesus said unto them that they need not depart. Give ye them to eat. And they said, We have but five loaves and two fishes. He said, Bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took five loaves and two fishes. And looking into heaven, he blessed and break and the loaves to the disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up the fragments that remained, 12 baskets full. And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. I used to be fascinated by the fact that Jesus is the one who created and multiplied the fish and the loaves there and that he had his disciples gather up which was left over. Why? I understand better now relative to gleanings that they used to do. God does not like loss. He doesn't like it. And if he cares enough about gathering up dead fish particles and pieces of bread, what about the souls of men? Are you kidding me? For some rather sick reasons, we have allowed ourselves to embrace an attitude that rejoices in the idea that God is going to torture and burn the wicked forever and ever and ever and ever. 
Jesus didn't say, hey, take the extra fish and loaves and throw it in the fire and burn it up. Gather it up. It has use. Some believers, they actually share hell with a gleam in their eye. They, they actually are excited that people who have missed the mark here in this life are going to go there forever and ever and ever. I think, I don't understand that how they could desire a fate like that. I understand punishment. I also understand discipline <coughs> for rejecting his son. I comprehend long sentences as a means to, to habilitate the most recalcitrant souls, but for God to assign souls to an eternity of incomprehensible suffering absolutely denies the whole premise of a ubiquitous harvest painted in Scripture by a loving, caring God. We know <coughs> really quickly, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, how come you eat with publicans and sinners? What are you doing eating with those guys? Jesus immediately launches into three stories. Remember, the first one was about a lost sheep. And the message was, what man would not leave the 99 and go after the one? Jesus is saying, talking about a man and sheep, right? Okay, and then the second one's a lost coin of 10. He says, what woman would not sweep her house, 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 until she found that coin, then calls her neighbors and say, rejoice with me, I found the coin. First a sheep, then a coin, rejoicing over the lost, bringing them back, Okay, and then of course, after that doesn't work on the people, there's silence there. Uh, then we have Jesus say uh, that the prodigal son, there was a man, he had two sons. And one went off and he was eating the husks of the pigs. And he came to himself, it says. He came to himself, came to his senses in the mud, in the mire, in the pig's trough. And he said, I, what am I doing this for? Let me change. Don't we think that while people are in that hell, that dark, don't we think if they're in the lake of fire and they cry out, Lord Jesus, forgive me. God, save me. I'm sorry. I've learned that God, who is long-suffering, who is love, who is, whose love never, ever, ever fails, don't we think he has some sort of secondary plan to, to bring them to him, reconcile them so that they would not perish, so that they would come to repentance? No, they're not going to be sons and daughters. No, they failed that. And, and that's, the, that's the sadness of the, of the message of the gospel when someone passes. But to, to suggest that he's a God who is just torturing them uh, is, is just really uh, outside of what Scripture says. The idea that once a person dies, the hope and chance, the ability to change is lost and that people are forever relegated to eternal punishment has never made sense to me relative to how the Bible describes God as love and how Jesus, when he came, was nothing but long-suffering and love. You know, as a human dad, I'm a weak, evil father of three daughters. I comprehend punishment. I get discipline. I understand allowing troubled children to run their course and to leave them to their own devices. I get letting my children make a mess of things as a, as a means to allow them to turn around and change course. But the idea of ever turning from a child, ever turning from one of my daughters or my grandsons, really any child to tell you, the, any person to tell you the truth, is so foreign to my thinking. And I'm an evil rat, donkey, jackass. And if I, as a just a really low life in my soul and flesh, have that kind of heart toward people generally, I don't want anybody to suffer. What do you think God is like? What do you imagine God would be like? Let's open up the phone lines. 801-590-8413. 590-8413. Mark, oh wait, we're going to take one spot. We'll come back to Mark in Meridian, Idaho. Let's hit the spot. We'll be right back. I would be doing the Lord and every viewer a disservice if I said Mormonism is Christian because it's a lie. Is he a repeat American evangelical Christianity. We're going to go after its politicking. We're going to go after its demands. We're going to go after its culture. We're going to go after its doctrine relative to what the Bible says. I do not believe any Christian has the right to demand that another believer receive such man-made terms or creeds or demands us to receive anything else. So I'm not going to get into a war with, with other believers over doctrine. I'm not going to do it. That is the opposite of what we're told to do. We're told to love. But think, 
and go to God and open up your scripture and search and let's try to figure this out together and let's cast off anything that is not biblical. In the end, we hope this couple will be able to produce a little baby we call Truth. 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 Let's go to Mark in Meridian, Idaho. Mark, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, Sean, how you doing? I'm doing well. How you doing, ma'am? Hey, I'm doing good. Good. I just had a question for you on the scriptures. I don't know. I haven't read enough to understand that. But do you believe that we were actually spiritual children up in heaven first? Or do you believe in DNA, sperm cells, and here we are now? No, um... Mark, my understanding of the Bible says that when God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, he breathed into him the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. And that breath that initiated life in Adam, from there, life just kept going forward from him. Eve was taken from his side. We have no more breathing going into her. And as they had children, and on and on and on, that life that God gave him, that breath, that pneuma, filled uh, Adam, and that perpetuates the human race. I think we are of the dust. I think that God's breath gives us life, both animates us uh, in the carnal sense, because we are fallen, and then re gives us rebirth. Uh, the, the Greeks believe in something called a transmigration of souls, and that did pass on into early church fathers' teachings that we came from a pre-existence, in fact, Joseph Smith, the, the LDS Church, often criticized right. uh, Christians for uh, borrowing from Greek uh, mythology or Greek teachings. But Smith borrowed from that, that transmigration of souls idea, and then came up with the preexistence. Jeremiah 1.5, a passage that says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. It's one of the right. passages the missionaries use. But right. um, that is just talking about the sovereignty of God. Jesus said, I am from above, you are from beneath. And he clearly uh, distinguished between his uh, origins and ours. We are from the dust of the earth. Does that help? Oh, yeah, definitely. Because I never could understand why, for one thing, why would we be casted from heaven if we were already up there? What we do wrong in the spirits to be casted down, we're not like re uh, aluminum cans. We don't get recycled, so it's kind of like it didn't make sense to me the whole system and why does the population keep going from you know zero to eight billion people if we're we should be the same <laughs> i don't know it's just yeah yeah, yeah. It makes sense hey i really appreciate you watching mark god bless you hey i appreciate you and everything you do and i got one more question you got another tattoo on your right arm my right arm yeah i got a tattoo on my arm what is it it's an x a what it's an x Okay. Yeah, I'll explain it someday. It's very symbolic in my All world. Right, well, I can't. I've seen bits and pieces, but you got long sleeved on, and I thought, oh no, he's going for more and more and more. I don't <laughs> want to see that. You should see my body, Mark. Oh, you you got. <laughs> no, I don't want to know. I'm got, all right. I got a I got a, mer yeah, I got a mermaid right here. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Just keep right. people well, hey, guessing. Keep it right? up. Love it. Love your show. Thanks, brother. Talk to you later. Right. Okay. See ya. Okay. Bye bye. Uh, what version of the Bible do I use? Uh, this is a Thompson chain, and it's big because it has wide margins, and I like that because I write in my Bible. And um, the Thompson chain, I like it a lot because there's no footnotes by men telling me how to think about the passage. All, now, I realize that men did make the chain, but the chain is from the Word of God. So what happens is, I'll just to give you an example, you open it up. It's a great way to learn the Word. You open it up to Genesis 1-1, uh, and it says, of course, uh, in the beginning, and then we have Creator, and then we have uh, heavens, and we have earth, and we have darkness, and we have the deep, and, and all of those have a reference number next to them. And 
and then it gives me the next passage, Exodus 20, 11, that talks about the creator. So it's a chain. So then I go to Exodus reference and I look at that and it gives me the next one in scripture. And so it's a cha- that's why they call it the Thompson chain. The chains through scripture, those certain topics, and there's thousands of topics that they have for you there in the footnote. And so what you do is you're just reading what the word says. And, um, and so I love the Thompson chain and that's all I've used since I was in the school of ministry. Where are all my crosses? My crosses are hanging on the rearview mirror of my car, and uh, I'll probably put them back on someday. And uh, someone asked me the other day, Mark A. asked me, am I preaching purgatory now? That's the Catholic idea of going into a place of punishment for the sinful, where they are purged of their sins before entering into heaven. And uh, I don't know the doctrine of purgatory really well. I haven't studied it. If it does suggest total reconciliation, then I guess in some ways I am. I don't know if the Catholics were completely unfounded in the idea of purgatory. I mean, maybe they were also read in Scripture and saw things. And, uh, but, so I, I don't know if I actually teach it or not. Great question here. Oh, on air. Okay. Uh, if love is the great commandment, why do we have to believe in Jesus? Ask yourself that. Why not just love others? It's, it's a good question. I think it's a great question in this day and age. Why don't we just go to Sugar House, that's a city in Salt Lake City, an area in Salt Lake City, and just walk around and love people like the people there seem to do? Just love. And why do we need Jesus? I'm just full of love. Well, so I would say, right, if you could... Uh, experience life on this earth and from the moment you were born you did nothing but love and you loved in the purest sense of unconditional agape love selfless sacrificial love like God has for you then you wouldn't need Jesus but the problem is you can't do that and even if you do it well you haven't done it perfectly and Martin Luther said those who think that they can get to heaven by their own loving works might be successful with their friends who they like, but just wait till they run up against their enemies. You see, you're not going to be perfect in your love, and if you're not perfect in your love, that means you're going to be harmartia, which is you are off the mark. You've missed the mark, and you know what we call that? Sin. So when you've missed the mark of loving perfectly, you have sinned. And then we need Jesus, who came and paid for that sin. And when you realize that he came and did what you fail at doing, probably every day, even if you think you're loving, and when you realize what he did for you, you love him first, and then that allows you out of gratitude and humility and brokenness to love others. And that's why we need Jesus in our lives to help us love others, because on our own, of our own flesh, you can't do it. You're going to fail every time. You need Jesus for the uh, propitiation of sin. But you also need that brokenness and that humility to see what he did for you, to be able to truly love others in that self-effacing, um, uh, unconditional way. So I hope that helped uh, Randy. So what's the difference between what you are teaching on eternal punishment and universalism? Universalism, which uh, is just everybody goes to heaven. And uh, I'm not teaching that at all. And I hope that's clear now. Very clear. Not teaching universalism. I'm just teaching that there's an alternative to uh, Christian understanding to Calvinism, five-point Calvinism, and Arminianism that says that we are in control because we are making our own choices. Looking through some old emails, I found one from uh, a brother claiming God still does miracles today. Okay, I said, of course. Miracles are done on the operating table. Miracles are done out in the woods when no one has a doctor. Miracles are done every time a baby's born. They went on to say, well, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead are being raised today. It's happening all over in third world countries. Okay, there it is. I don't know. They say it is, if, it, if they say it is and it's happening, then it is. And, but I, and I believe God heals. I think he heals us every time we get a cold. It's God's 
love for us that's, that's healing us. And if we don't recover, it's because he wants us back or something. I don't know. But I've always wondered this. Um, so he goes on, why you pick on faith healing? The greatest miracle of our age is the change of the human heart. It's God's spirit coming in and changing a human being and making a stubborn, arrogant human being broken and humble and loving toward God and others. That's the greatest miracle in this modern age. Okay, doctors can fix a physically broken heart. They can even extend legs and do all sorts of things, but they can't change the human heart's condition. That's the greatest miracle and all the physical miracles of Jesus, I believe, pictured the change of heart now. But I do have a question about physical miracles. Has anybody ever in the history of the world, I, this is a question for our audience, email me if you know the answer. Has an amputee ever had a limb grow back? I want to know if an amputee at the hands of a faith healer, not a leg that's shorter than the other, someone that's had it lopped off at the hip, lopped off at the shoulder, has, has, do we have any record where that's been medically proven where a faith healer has grown the amputee limb back? I will I put $100, anybody who can prove to me that in our day and age, you know, 1900s, 20th century, I'll bet nowhere have we ever seen an amputee have a limb restored back to their body. If 100 bucks, my word to anybody who can prove that it's happened. And when I say proof, I don't need video. I just want to see something that said the person lost their arm in a train wreck and a faith healer came to the tent and this person testified. That would be enough. You got to, but it won't happen. I want to know why. If the faith healing is so powerful and we can heal everything today by faith healing and our faith, why is it always those things like, uh, you know, the, the, the ailments or, you know, the, the, the things that you really can't tell how healed they are, but we don't see amputees getting limbs back? That's my question. I'm not critical of it. I just want to I just want to really look at it to see what it is all about. We have three minutes. Let me see if I can get through this. Uh, this person says, uh, you mentioned in one of your shows that people who leave the Mormon church tend to gravitate towards atheism. I want to give you a few reasons why from my perspective. This is really interesting. Mormonism has historical problems. So does evangelical Christianity. And she goes on to say uh, that those historical problems are one reason. Mormon, number two, Mormonism doesn't know what to do with women. Neither does evangelical Christianity. Uh, as a woman, I don't, I don't see wanting to spend my time with people who think that Eve ate an apple and women are somehow weaker and more easily tempted. Number three, Mormonism and evangelical Christianity have the same vision of a woman's life. So we're starting to see a pattern here. <laughs> Number four, Mormonism and evangelical Christianity don't know what to do with women. <laughs> so, so it goes on. I'm sorry. She's going to get, really get mad. I'm laughing. And then the fifth one is that it's all about money. I'd also like to note if these things weren't changed, she says in the last paragraph, I wouldn't go back to church anyway. So, you know, this, this wraps us up to kind of a point. And, and just check your heart on this. If you're seeking for truth and you want to embrace Christ Jesus, he kind of works it often, not always, that you got to step out in faith. And you got to move out a little bit into the dark and you got to see where God is. If you've already established in your heart all the things you have wrong with Christianity and Mormonism and, and all the belief systems, and you know that there is no God, and you've already established that there's all these problems, you, you're probably you're not going to get anything. It just works that way. Scripture is replete with examples of how we believe and we start to grow. You have to step out and believe. Like Christ, when he said to the guy in the temple whose hand was all withered, stretch forth your hand. You have to take the action forward and then you'll see that, that miracle of faith. It happens all the time. Rise up and walk. All these commands that are given to us. So your, your complaints, you may be right on some of those complaints. But bottom line, if you're going to stand there angry, in the, looking in, uh, you know, angry at everything, you're not going to grow in the faith. You have to be willing to soften the heart to say, God, you mold me. 
I want to know what you want me to do and what you want me to know. I'm willing to do whatever it takes and let's go forward and then God will work with you. That's from D in Mesa, Arizona. Uh, not going to read that one. One minute. Not going to read that. Well, let's just wrap it up. All right. Next week, uh, we're going to get into uh, now finally, after a lot of kind of preface, preface material, now we're starting to get more and more into scripture. And I think one more week, maybe two, and we'll wrap up eternal punishment. But we're going to give a lot of scriptural definitions of what scripture is saying about eternal, forever, fire, burning, and all those different things. And I think it will really help round out uh, the thing before the year ends. And uh, we thank you guys for watching. Tune in. Join us next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out I'm going in This man's awake the storms are rising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light filled.